leaders, uh, each of us in our respective countries, because we can contribute to regional world peace, democracy, only when we succeed in our own countries. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Club de Madrid's podcast series, Democracy in Practice. You are listening to the second episode of this series, which commemorates Club de Madrid's 20th anniversary and reflects on the challenges to democracy that the organization has addressed since its foundation. My name is Ted Picone, Chief Engagement Officer at the World Justice Project and advisor to Club de Madrid, and I will be your host today. This second conversation with a member of the Club de Madrid will focus on democratic leadership in transition and consolidation. It is my honor to be joined by Jose Manuel Ramos Horta, president of Timor-Leste between 2007 and 2012 and a renowned democracy builder. In 1996, President Ramos Horta received the Nobel Peace Prize for working, quote, towards a just and peaceful solution to the conflict in Timor-Leste, being recognized as the leading international spokesperson for his country's cause since 1975. After leaving office, he continued his work on transition and consolidation in many ways, including as the United Nations Special Representative and head of the UN Integrated Peacebuilding Office in Guinea-Bissau. Welcome, President Ramachorta. Thank you for joining us today. A great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to begin by transporting our listeners back in time to the early days of your remarkable career. From a young age, you were actively involved in raising awareness of the situation of Timor-Leste, which was then a colony of Portugal, and advocating for the independence of your country. You were deported at the early age of 18 to Portuguese East Africa for two years. After returning to your country in 1971, you founded the Revolutionary Front of Independent Timor-Leste, otherwise known as Fretilin. When Fretilin declared the independence of Timor-Leste in 1975, you were appointed foreign minister and started traveling around the world to seek international recognition and support. Shortly before Indonesia, occupied the country. You were just 25 years old at the time, becoming the youngest diplomat ever to address the UN Security Council. Looking back now at those early days in your country's quest for a free and democratic Timor-Leste, what piece of advice would you share with young democratic leaders and activists today? And why is it important for young people to be represented in processes of democratic transition and consolidation? Well, uh, my advice first uh, is, uh, A, uh, we have to be always inspired 
animated by convictions. Do we believe or not in a particular vision cause? So we have to be truly, truly inspired, animated by a vision, a vision of justice, of freedom. And then you have to have brains, you have to have intelligence. So you have to study, you have to be uh, strategic. Uh, it's not enough to have a vision, to have ideals, to dream. You really have to study hard in order to uh, uh, reach uh, the goals. And you have to be persistent. You have to be audacious. You have to be pragmatic. You cannot be dogmatic. And everything you do, you have to do with brains. Uh, you cannot do with dogma. I always tell uh, the young people in my country when I talk to them, I tell them, you know, when we fight for democracy, when you fight for human rights, we fight because we believe in it. And we are prepared to sacrifice ourselves to achieve those goals. But we always fought with brains. Uh, um, uh, so that we know every step to take and we have to stay focused. So that's my advice. Well, you know, these are very powerful and wise words from experience. Um, and you've had a really remarkable educational career as well as in politics. Um, but I love these uh, key words, you know, persistence, pragmatism, but also being audacious and humility and compassion. Those are, those are really the um, quite a combination of values to bring to the table. And I think really has marked your career. I want to turn now to the topic of multilateralism, which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, is important also to think about in, in your experience, but also today. So more than four decades ago, you flew to New York to address the UN Security Council and urged them to take action in the face of the Indonesian occupation of Timor-Leste. It's been said that you arrived in the United States with only $25 in your pocket. Over the following years, you continued to travel worldwide, trying to persuade the international community and successfully, I might add, to work on a solution to the conflict. Today, the case of Timor-Leste is often regarded as the most successful UN peacekeeping and nation-building process in its 75-year history. So let me pose a, a two-part question. Looking back at those days, how did the role of the United Nations for Timor-Leste's democratic transition make a difference to its independence, especially compared to other failed attempts we've witnessed in the past? And second part of the question, and taking into account the lessons learned from your country's experience, what would you say is the responsibility of the international community today in countries still struggling to make the transition to democracy? You know, each situation is usually different. There are some commonalities, but, uh, you know, the Palestinian situation, the Kurdish situation and many others, there are a lot of differences. The geography, uh, the powers surrounding you, uh, 
the rivalry of the powers surrounding you, but yourselves as people, as a movement, are you united? We had some extraordinary people. One is Mr. Shanana Guzman. Uh, what an incredible uh, person with a vision, with extraordinary willpower, uh, leading our uh, people uh, in the midst of uh, extraordinary violence and uh, isolation, geographical and physical isolation. So an extraordinary leader, but also animated with humility, with compassion, with pragmatism. One thing uh, is we never preach hatred towards the Indonesians. Never once you will find in our political discourses, archives, any of us ever demonize the Indonesian people. Never would find in 24 years as demonizing Muslims. Timur Leste is predominantly Catholic, 98% Catholic. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. We never demonize the Indonesians as a people or as a Muslim. We did have a fighting guerrilla force, but in 24 years, they never executed a captured Indonesian soldier. They never kidnapped or executed an Indonesian civilian living in our country. Uh, so these are the differences between some movements and the others. Mm -hmm. And uh, so leadership first, first leadership in uh, ourselves. Then your question about the UN. Well, mm -hmm. circumstances helped us in, in 96, Kofi Annan was elected Secretary General, a charismatic individual. In January 97, in his inaugural speech, he said, within my first term in office, I want to see the problem of his Timur resolved. Circumstances uh, came together. Not only Kofi Annan, the elected Secretary General, he took upon the, on the, uh, you know, real leadership on the issue. There was an economic and financial crisis in Southeast Asia that hit hard Indonesia. Indonesia gradually became, came into term oil. Students went to the streets and the Suharto resigned as president, was forced to resign. So I mentioned students went to the street. We can go back to your first question. The role of youth. Yes, the youth have been the, the change makers. They are the ones who bring down uh, empires, bring down dictators. But there has to be a leadership. If, of course, the students, you know, they're young. They can bring, up, bring down an empire. But then what? After the empire. That's when you have a more adult experienced leaders uh, who then can translate that or can move on from that into building a better country, a better society, and the one that we had just overthrown. Otherwise, after the empire is chaos. Uh, or as De Gaulle, I think De Gaulle, General De Gaulle once said, 
après moi, c'est le déluge. <laughs> so it is not only the ideal, idealism uh, of the, and the bravery of the youth. So the two generations, several generations have to be, you know, uh, complement each other. The youth, are, they are the energy, the, the ideals, because adults, sometimes, the more adult you become, you are less idealistic. So the youth remain, you know, very idealistic in the good sense. It's not in a pejorative way. In the good thing, they want a better world. And but sometimes we are overwhelmed by pragmatism, by real politics. You have to cut deals, you compromise. Well, and then you betray the youth who went to the streets and uh, want the change. Yeah, it's really finding the right place. I'd like the you know the complexity of these change processes require leadership at multiple levels. The youth also needs to be organized and led. The uh, national actors who are actually doing the negotiation need to have a clear vision, as you said about uh, Mr. Gosmao. But also in the international scene, we need thoughtful activist leaders leading the UN and other international bodies um, and ready to, to articulate the case for peace, um, which Kofi Annan did so, so well. Um, related to this question and thinking about um, your part of the world, you know, the Club de Madrid is actively involved in, in strengthening multilateralism and global cooperation as a pillar of building peaceful societies. So thinking about Southeast Asia, and specifically the ongoing instability in countries like Myanmar and Thailand. What do you think is the role of regional integration processes such as ASEAN in promoting stability, democracy, and the rule of law? Uh, before I answer that, let me uh, go back a bit to the UN, uh, because by coincidence, uh, the president of Club of Madrid now, is Professor Danilo Turk. Uh, I knew Danilo when he was a young international law professor, member of the UN, a little subcommittee in Geneva called Subcommittee on Prevention of Discrimination and Protection of Minorities. He always would listen to me. <laughs> At the time, I was an unknown entity. Then uh, later he became, uh, well, uh, uh, <clears throat> Uh, Slovenia became uh, independent. Uh, well, it was already independent then. Then he became um, uh, ambassador to the United Nations. After that, he became president. But when he was ambassador and Slovenia was member of the Security Council, the, ro the rotation, non-permanent, in the wars of the crisis in September 99, he was part of a Security Council mission that came to Indonesia and to Timor-Leste. And that particular mission of the UN Security Council, in which um, Danilo was member, was crucial in returning to New York and they got the Security Council to act. So, uh, and uh, interesting enough, one extremely important key player in the resolution of the Timor-Leste problem 
was, is someone who later became member of the Club of Madrid. And that was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was president in 99. And I don't know if, it, if we didn't have Bill Clinton as president of the United States, I don't know whether we would have a resolution of the Timor-Leste problem in 99. So Bill Clinton played an incredibly decisive role in uh, getting the U.S. fully diplomatically, diplomatically engaged to get the Security Council to uh, uh, and pressure Indonesia to accept a multinational force. So anyway, I wanted, in fairness, to pay tribute to our president, Danilo Turku, uh, and uh, to Bill Clinton. Indeed. But this is also to illustrate the importance of the multilateral system of world leaders. Uh, when you have a, a world leaders of that caliber, yes, maybe some of the more intractable problems like Myanmar can be resolved. But uh, you mentioned Myanmar. A, I would say uh, it is very dangerous time for the very credibility of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It is a very delicate time, extraordinary challenge to them. People are fighting, dying in Myanmar, from children, babies, women, youth, all the people, all walks of life. I rarely have seen a national movement so encompassing of everybody. And uh, they are feeling betrayed. They have been betrayed by ASEAN leadership. But not that the ASEAN leaders don't want to do anything, but they are caught in the ASEAN network uh, mindset. You see, it is a small organization in terms of numbers, only 10, but extraordinarily diverse. We have uh, two communist regimes, Vietnam and the Laos. You have uh, an absolutist monarchy, uh, Brunei. Brunei is not a British-style monarchy. It is an absolutist um, monarchy. I know the Sultan, very good man. And uh, then you have uh, Philippines led by President Duterte. I don't comment any further on, on that. Then you have a Thailand. The current government came off several coups that they did against each elected government. One after another, they overthrow. Then you have a Singapore, uh, not a dictatorship, not a full-fledged democracy, an incredibly successful economy. And then you have Indonesia and Malaysia, the two more functioning democracies in Southeast Asia. Timor-Leste is rated by Freedom House in Washington as the most functioning, the best functioning democracy in Southeast Asia. <laughs> and, uh, but we are not yet part of ASEAN. So I, you can imagine the difficulties of the ASEAN chairmanship, Brunei, to reach consensus among these diverse leaders on how to address the situation in Myanmar. And they don't have many options. If they don't resolve by convincing the military 
to go back to the barracks to recognize the outcome of the elections with whatever compromise that have to be made, well, the people of Myanmar will continue to fight. The country will further destabilize. The economy completely wrecked and invite further instability throughout the region. And that poses an existential threat to ASEAN itself. Move on from, from ASEAN in particular, because I think you've pointed out the diversity is both a blessing and maybe a curse when it comes to taking a unified stance uh, when one of its members has this kind of, of crisis. And maybe uh, the international community needs to look elsewhere for uh, support uh, to, the, to the people of Myanmar. But there are periods of East Timor's transition to democracy where things were quite unstable and, and challenging. So thinking about, for example, in 2006 um, and the crisis then, uh, when national leaders of East Timor and the president of the European Commission at the time, Jose Manuel Barroso, invited the Club of Madrid to support Timor-Leste's efforts to bridge the political and personality differences and to support national dialogue. And we had Club de Madrid members, Kassam Moutin, uh, Valdis Berkovs, Jenny Shipley, um, folks who had direct experience as democratically elected leaders working closely with you to advocate for a strong parliament and the role of the opposition in a viable and functioning democracy. And these, these are essential features of of representative democracy, as you know. So you've seen firsthand the work that the Club of Madrid can do in these kinds of situations. What do you see as the value added of the Club de Madrid in getting involved in democratic transitions? One way is it is a cumulative experience of uh, so many people with different experiences formerly elected leaders from Europe, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Western Europe, from Africa, Latin America, not so many from Asia, and which shows, illustrate how backward uh, Asia is in terms of democracy. You know, you can count uh, how many democracies are there in Asia. Club of Madrid are not made of every former leader, only those who were elected and uh, it has very strict rules of membership unlike some other organization that you know anyone can join and uh, no so uh, it has much more credibility because of the integrity of the membership so and because of the cumulative experience some of us are good in a mediation some of us are better in economic recovery, in uh, economic growth, in sustainable development. So Club of Madrid can draw on uh, a diverse experience of its membership. So when we had a crisis here, uh, few uh, Club of Madrid members came. Uh, Shipley, she was prime minister in New Zealand when the crisis in Timor happened in 99. She played a critical role in uh, with Australia, with Bill Clinton and others uh, to get international consensus on Timor-Leste. 
So she came here with enormous authority. Then we had a former uh, president or prime minister from Latvia. So Clavo um, uh, Madrid has a huge, uh, you know, um, how you say, standing, and uh, it yeah. can be uh, even more useful. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, I think you really put your finger on the value added is. Um, the, the Club of Madrid's approach is to come in with experience and humility and to be uh, listeners and bridge builders. And thinking about that role of responsible leadership and, and thinking about the world today, uh, it seems that a different kind of leader is coming to the fore, um, more autocratic and populist leaders. And they seem to be learning from each other in, in real time. And we can list off several examples of this. Um, and, and now we're seeing in the current context of the pandemic that an already disappointing record for democratic governance and the rule of law is getting worse. Um, and we see authoritarian and populist actions amplified in the midst of the crisis. So, so what message would you pass to leaders of both young and older democracies to encourage them to take more responsible leadership roles as opposed to what we're seeing from these more populist or authoritarian discourses? I'm not as pessimistic as many I've seen uh, writing, speaking. These are uh, transitional, temporary setbacks. And, uh, you know, the Europeans uh, had some more serious uh, challenges when was that in the 70s, 80s, with extreme left in Germany, Bader Meinhof, in France, Action Directe, in Italy, Brigata Rosa, yeah? the Red Brigade, uh, in Spain, uh, they had ETA, and, uh, and they had, uh, you know, in the immediate transition to democracy, there were the phalanges trying to, uh, you know, take over the Spanish parliament and uh, so on. So these are cycles, transitions, uh, situations that happen that I think temporary. Because you can see, look at the experience of the United States right now. You know, Donald Trump ended up with only one term. From afar, I was watching every day <laughs> the battles in the United States. And um, uh, I was impressed with the strength of American democratic institution, of American uh, democracy. <laughs> I look at how the Americans are fighting back, how powerful, uh, independent was the justice, uh, the judiciary in the United States, how vibrant were the media. You know, the Donald Trump declared uh, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, ABC, they're all enemies of the people. But he didn't order anyone to go to jail. You know, uh, the journalists kept writing every day. And uh, so that is the strength of the American democracy and the strength of democracy in Europe. Democratic leaders in Europe, democratic leaders in the United States have to understand the root causes of this movement. What caused Donald Trump? Well, you have to address those who believe in Donald Trump demagogy, false promises. You have to understand who, the, who, what caused people in France to believe in Marine Le Pen, 
Jean-Marie Le Pen, and uh, so on, and address that. Maybe the alienation of the youth in the banlieue of Paris, of France, and uh, the lack of inclusiveness, the feeling of exclusion, alienation, discrimination of the youth in France and in Belgium. So uh, that yes, this is a challenge we have to address. But I don't think that democracy is in peril. In peril. Uh, I'm glad to hear some optimism. Um, having lived through the Trump presidency these last four years, I have to say it was very challenging, real test of American democracy, and we survived it. But in my view, it should never have come this close. You know, it, it was very close. <laughs> it was a close call on January 6th. And when we saw the violence and the insurrection at the Capitol, an overt attempt encouraged by the president to um, overthrow the fair and free elections process. And but, uh, uh, but Ted, Ted, let me tell you, the U.S. Defense Force, the army would never allow such a thing to happen. Yeah. But they, but uh, they did. They were very slow to respond, and I think it's one of the yeah. as far as it did. And so we're we're still have a lot of work to do. You know, I wish we had more time to talk. But let me let me turn to a related country. You mentioned uh, defense forces. You know, we see democracy threatened by the growing role of the military in many countries in Asia. For example, we talked about Myanmar. Um, and how the failure to consolidate democratic control of security forces can threaten social cohesion and peace and socioeconomic development of a country. Um, so there's still much to do in, in Myanmar. Myanmar. Timor-Leste suffered some violence throughout its democratization processes. And, and in fact, you were severely wounded during an assassination attempt by renegade military forces in, in 2008. How can the lessons learned unless they help the international community to address the crisis in Myanmar today and specifically the role of, of civil, the civil military relations aspect? So uh, international pressure, targeted sanctions, the use of uh, international justice ICC, International Criminal Court, uh, uh, procedures, uh, all of that have to, we have to try to use because the military, they understand power and uh, they never faced before uh, such an opposition. The past, uh, uh, uprisings and pro-democracy uprisings when one didn't have uh, the dimension of what is happening today. They were totally surprised. And uh, the international reaction much stronger. The economy is paralyzed. Everybody in the region is worried. So pressure has to continue. But at the same time, diplomacy, politics teach us we have to find ways to compromise. But the military will compromise only when the pressure is credible, when it really hurt them. And hurt, hurt them where? 
the, the Myanmar military, they control the entire economy of Myanmar. There is no military like this in the world. They own everything, even travel agencies, banks, money, money change, uh, uh, not to mention uh, conglomerates that are set up by the military uh, that uh, enable them to uh, break the sanctions. They have investments in Singapore, in Thailand. Uh, so the international community has, to, when they feel hurt, and when China and Russia feel that uh, uh, they are supporting the losing side, China is embarrassed with the situation. And uh, uh, then you offer them way out, compromise. But so far, there is not a, uh, any progress in seeing the military uh, uh, showing flexibility. No, they continue to use force. So I would hope that the US and the European Union uh, continue to take the leadership because no one else can do it. Obviously, the Secretary General has been outspoken. The Special Representative of the Secretary General has been outspoken, and that's very important. But as in the past, I used to say, in, including even to the Secretary General, you know, you do not command the Sixth Fleet. You do not command the Seventh Fleet. You do not lead the largest economy of the world. Uh, so we need the United States to uh, exercise carrot and stick approach. But in this 21st century of diffuse, uh, diffuse power, because it's no longer only the United States, they're all too powerful. We have China. So how can the United States try to work with China in addressing uh, Myanmar? Easier to resolve Myanmar between China and the United States than United States and China to resolve North Korea nuclear uh, situation. Those are two, two very different but very hot topics right now, and they both need a lot of attention. So we're reaching the end of our podcast, um, but I want to ask you a final question that relates the central mandate of the Club of Madrid and your own experience and career in building democracy. Um, you know, the Club of Madrid has been working in various places around the world, like Bolivia, Kyrgyzstan, Serbia, South Africa, of course, your own country to help build these inclusive and peaceful societies within the framework of good governance and democratic institutions. And you've actually lived this in your career, you know, starting at such a young age and you've competed in elections, you've addressed the highest levels at the UN and earned a Nobel Peace Prize for your efforts. Um, you've made tremendous sacrifices and are a living example of uh, both that, that vision and that commitment and willpower toward uh, democracy and democratic values and the pragmatism to get things done. Um, you, you referred earlier that you're fairly optimistic about the state of democracy right now. Um, and I just 
as a final maybe summation question, what would you say to those who who still question the importance of democracy today? Um, and 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 the and the the cynicism that we're seeing and the doubts about whether democracy can deliver um, when you contrast it, you mentioned China and other countries that seem to be doing um, well and lifting people out of poverty. Leaders, uh, each of us in our respective countries, because we can contribute to regional world peace, democracy, only when we succeed in our own countries. And, uh, you know, I have said this many times, you know, even in regard to climate change. You know, Timor-Leste is responsible for 0.0000, you can many add as many zeros, uh, as a CO2 emission, uh, emission, you know. So we are totally non-responsible for climate change. Uh, and we can, uh, but, and how can we contribute? We are minute. I, I tell our people, yes, we can contribute by addressing our own situation. Instead of joining in uh, uh, the blame game, in every speech, like so many do, in the international forum, you blame the Americans, blame the Europeans, and the Americans, the Europeans blame the Chinese, blame India. I said, no, we focus on our own island. Clean our rivers, our lakes, our sea, uh, prohibit uh, plastic, uh, replant trees, and we are doing, we are planting hundreds of thousands of trees. So. If each of us in our own countries, we improve environment, uh, we stop poisoning the sea, the rivers, we try, we try to restock the depleted fish stock, overfishing, but overfishing not by us, overfishing by China, by Korea, by Thailand, by Indonesia, not by us. But so, uh, and the leaders have to be sensitive to the youth we have to create conditions for them to live better, to study better. Uh, they have it to, even if we cannot deliver to them, they should know why we cannot deliver. We cannot deliver because the country is too poor. And if they know that, they are not demanding the impossible. So we have to be very sensitive very honest with the people and uh, we have to embrace people and that's what our leadership is all about when you look at uh, conflict situations well particularly in multi-ethnic multicultural multi-religion societies instead of uh, looking at diversity as a tremendous blessing you know, a country with so many ethnic groups, religions, culture, languages, wow, it's so rich. No, there is one some group of leaders from a particular ethnic group that they want to dominate. They want everybody to speak the same language. Uh, they prohibit the national languages. Well, look at Myanmar or Turkey with the unresolved Kurdish problem. And uh, so, uh, 
but that very difficult for the international community to do much about it because the problems begin with national leaders and the problems have to be solved by national leaders. Club of Madrid, the international community, we can help only to the extent that everybody in that country uh, understand that to create peace, they themselves have to reach out to the international community and ask the international community to assist. But as long as they, they uh, are inspired by the need to change course, by embracing those who in the past they demonized, like what's happening in Myanmar, now is a time, a unique opportunity for the ethnic nationalities. Finally, after 60 years of exclusion, they have a voice in the future of the country. That's what the current democratic uh, transition government, transition parliament is offering. So I think this sums up our conversation very well, which is that democracy and human rights begin at home. And that's where it needs to be addressed first and foremost in this inclusive way, bringing in young people and all sectors of society and the importance of committed visionary and pragmatic leadership uh, to make that happen. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And we're so grateful for your continued com commitment to supporting others in their journeys towards better democracy. I don't want to sign off without sharing with our audience that the next podcast will focus on democracy and inclusion. And we will welcome another Club de Madrid member and an advisor to guide us through this timely topic. Many thanks and goodbye. Thank you, Ted.